You can grab your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, you can put your hand up and uh, one of our ushers will gladly get a Bible across to you. We want to make sure that you have a copy of God's Word that you can follow along as we work through the Scriptures together this afternoon. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you today. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Pray that God would use it in a marvelous ways to bless you, to transform you more and more into the image of His Son. Now, I bet when you woke up this morning and you started thinking about coming to church, you were thinking about, man, I can't wait to get to church so we can talk about sin and Satan, judgment. That's what we were all excited for, right, when we woke up today. And that's actually what we're going to do, so you're welcome. This afternoon, we're going we're gonna to talk about the fall into sin. And, and listen, I, I know it's not fun to, to focus on sin and judgment. At times, I, I think it's really hard for us to do that. But I, I want you to understand that I think this is actually a gift of God's grace. This is God's gracious word for us today. That when we understand sin, it actually leads us to greater joy. And, and let me give you an illustration of that, okay? Um, many of us know the experience of having something wrong with our physical body and going to a doctor to help figure it out, only to be told, I have no clue what's wrong with you, right? Or, or they pretend like they do, but they don't, and they send you to a one specialist after another, and, and, and it's just this tiring, exhausting process. You're just like, I just need somebody to tell me what's wrong with me and what I can do about it. And, and it's not good news often when they finally figure it out, but there's some sort of relief that comes, isn't there, from knowing what, what's actually wrong with you so that you can then treat it properly. And in a sense, that's exactly what this passage of Scripture helps us to do. It's interesting that the focal point of our text really is about sin. But you see, step by step, Moses, the author of Genesis, has been getting us ready for this very moment. In chapters 1 and 2, God has painted this beautiful picture for us about the creation of the world, the creation of the universe. We're being told throughout that first chapter in particular that God made everything good. God formed it and he filled it. I mean, it was, it was beautiful. It was amazing and incredible. Then God makes the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, Adam and Eve, and he places them in this garden paradise. And he tells them to, to work and to keep this garden, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to, to, to take the borders of Eden and extend extend these borders all the way around the whole world so that the, the world would be filled with the glory of God. And the natural question that every Jew would be asking as they're hearing this account, maybe, maybe verbally read to them, they're looking around at their life, they're looking around at the world, and they're asking this question, if God made it so good, what happened to make it so bad? How did we get from there to here? 
And what we find here is the foundations for understanding the fall of humanity into sin. We see here a familiar story of Adam and Eve. People in the world know this story. People who have never stepped foot in a church are familiar with these two names, Adam and Eve. But I want you to see here that this is, this is not just a story about the origins of sin. It's a story about the nature of sin. It's interesting I don't know if you've ever caught this before, but Adam and Eve, those aren't uh, proper names that are found elsewhere in Scripture. Have you ever caught that? You ever caught that as you read through the, the countless genealogies or names in Scripture? Never once do you come across another person in the Bible named Adam or another woman in the Bible named Eve. I think that's in part because while they were real people, they actually represent all people. The name Adam literally means human or humanity. The name Eve literally means life. And you see in Genesis chapter 3, we see this sad account of how humanity and life got into their present fallen state. And it's familiar because we, we know it. Listen, we know, we know just, not just the story, we know the experience intimately, personally. We know what it is to fall into sin. We, we feel it deep within our bones. We see it all around us. We feel it within us. And here we're being told what exactly went wrong. We see in this account who's involved, how it happens, and, and we actually see, if we're careful, what we can do about it. Let's just read the first seven verses together. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As we walk through this, I just want to break it down with three simple points. I want to tell you what we see, and I want to tell you what our response ought to be. First, we see the tempter, and here's what our response should be. Be aware. Be aware. Verse 1, we're introduced to a new character in the story, the serpent. 
But there's something unique about the serpent here, isn't there? We're told that this serpent is more crafty than any of the other wild animals that God had created. He's crafty, he's shrewd, he comes slithering into the garden, and he has a sneaky scheme planned. But I want you to see, too, what the scriptures tell us. He's actually a subordinate. We need to see here that Satan, the serpent here that's being described, is not equal with God. Yeah? He's not on the same plane as God. He's a created being. He's like all the other beasts of the field. And that also tells us something about Adam and Eve's role here when they see this serpent slithering in. You see, they were told by God Early in chapter 1 of Genesis, they were take, to take dominion over the world. They were to rule over the beasts of the field. This serpent is supposed to be a subordinate creature over whom human beings were actually designed to exercise dominion. And the text, it's interesting, doesn't tell us anything about the origin of this serpent. It doesn't tell us anything even about the origin of evil. But I want you to just consider this for a moment. Long before sin entered the world through Adam, sin was already present in the cosmos. There is evil, which actually tells us that Adam's role was going to be one of fighting evil and upholding righteousness. It becomes clear through the unfolding of the Bible that the serpent here is actually uh, who we know as Satan. Satan, the scriptures tell us, was a created being, and he was created uh, as an angel. He was around the throne of God. He was a part of God's divine council. But he rebelled against God at some point before this event that we read about here. And he actually carried with him many other angelic beings in his rebellion. The New Testament describes the devil as a liar and the father of lies. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44. It says, you are of your father, the devil. He's speaking now to the Pharisees, the false teachers who are deceiving people and leading them astray. He says, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. In the book of Revelation Chapter 12, verse 9, John writes these words. He says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And while a Christians need not fear him, he must not deny or dismiss him. We must be aware of Satan, who he is, and what he is up to. He's described in Scripture as a liar, a deceiver. He's known throughout the Scriptures as the adversary. He is a real figure, but he is also a symbol of anti-God. He is the being in this universe who is most opposed to God, his will, his word, and his people. 
He he has a, a deep hatred and disgust for Jesus and therefore a deep disgust for the bride of Jesus, the church. I want you to keep in mind what we know already of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Up to this point, I want you to consider this. It was the word of the Lord, the word of God, Yahweh God, that brought life and order. And what we're going to see here is that it is the words of Satan that will bring chaos and death. Unlike God, Satan is not a creator, but a decreator. He's not a builder, but a destroyer. He's not a rightful king, but a wicked usurper. Now remember, Adam's role is to work and keep the garden. We saw that that language actually means to guard and protect. So again, later scriptures actually give us more clarity, but we know that he does not belong here. Satan does not belong in the garden We'll read later in the book of Leviticus that serpents were actually unclean. They weren't allowed in God's temple. God's people weren't supposed to touch them. They certainly weren't supposed to talk to them. Adam, as the high priest in the temple of God, should have slain the serpent and cast it out of the garden once and for all. Adam, as king, should have ruled and taken dominion over the serpent. Adam, as prophet, should have spoken the words of truth, the very words of God. But the serpent in his subtle guise is malevolent and he's wiser than humans. His goal, you see, what's Satan doing? What's his objective here? His goal is to bring them under his rule. Satan wants to be God. He wants to be worshipped as God. And he wants to rule. He wants everybody to bow the knee to him. And this is his way of doing it. He has no rightful rule, so he's got to steal the rule. He's got to usurp Adam's role as the rightful king and ruler of God's world. And he has to deceive him into giving power to him. Now, I, I think, listen, we just need to to be aware of this, Satan is real. I, I know, I know we, 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 some of us, we even hear that. We're like, yeah, yeah, I, I know. No, Satan is real. He is a, a real enemy, a real adversary. He is a real good liar and a real good deceiver. And I, I say that because I think there's two ditches that we can fall into in the Christian life. We can see Satan everywhere or we can see him nowhere. And there's a lot of people who run around, you know, think that Satan's hiding under every rock and tree. I don't think that's accurate, and I don't think that's true, and I don't think that's helpful to blame every wicked, wrong thing in this world on Satan. But I think, listen, many of us, we swing into the other error, and we don't believe Satan is anywhere. We're not paying attention to the reality of Satan. We're not even thinking about the reality that we're living in the middle of a spiritual war. And as a result, listen, if you're not aware of your enemy and you're not aware of the war and you're not aware of how he fights this war, then what's going to happen to you? You're dead. You're a perfect target. What's, what's that line from that movie? Or the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist, Right? I think that's, that's true, and I think sadly that's true for many Christians who believe theologically that Satan exists but live practically as if he doesn't. 
And the reality is when you think of Satan, listen, he doesn't show up the way he does in the movies. You know, red spandex and a pitchfork. It's not the way he operates. You have to be aware, for he often disguises himself, the scriptures say, even as an angel of light. He comes claiming to bring a message of truth. But he comes, listen to what the New Testament says, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And after the fall, this is fascinating, after Adam gives the authority over to Satan, you want to know what he is referred to in the New Testament? He is the prince of the power of the air. He has a domain of darkness. He is the ruler of this world. John 1 First John, excuse me, 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. Tis. He stole it. He's manipulating it. He's controlling it. You know, he, he's, listen, here's the good news, right? He's still on a leash, right? Satan, Martin Luther famously says, is still God's devil. But make no mistake about it, he is alive and active in the world, and we must be aware Secondly, let's look at the temptation, and here's our response to it. We must be ready. We must be ready. The story begins to unfold, and this serpent comes along and begins to talk. He says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now again, just... just Pay attention to the, the broader context for a moment. God uses his word to create. The serpent perverts God's word, using it to bring confusion and to draw Adam and Eve subtly under his control. It's been rightly said by John Blanchard. I'll put the quote on the screen here. Satan does not work haphazardly, but attacks systematically. We are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest. It sounds like Survivor. Now, full disclosure, I am a Survivor fan, okay? Don't hate me. Don't judge me. There's some closet Survivor fans in here too. I know there is. But, but I, I, had, I was thinking about this. Because, you know, it's amazing. If you watch Survivor, here's, here's what you know. Right? Outwit, outplay, outlast. And they're constantly lying and deceiving and manipulating. They're trying to get to the end. And I couldn't help but think that, that Christians, the Christian life is, is kind of like a more serious Survivor. We are, we are trying to survive. But what's so fascinating about Survivor is that it's inevitable. They get to tribal council every night, right? They go to tribal council, and, and here's, what, here's what happens. Everybody thinks they're safe. Everybody's like, I'm comfortable. I, I feel great. My alliance is sticking with me. But the reality is, listen, someone has been deceived, someone's getting blindsided, and somebody's going home. And I just, I just can't help but think that's often the way it works with Christians who are not ready for the spiritual attacks of the enemy. And I just want to say to you today, listen, don't be blindsided. Don't be blindsided by Satan. Don't think you're safe. Don't think you're off limits. Don't think he's going to leave you alone. He's not. He's not at all. 
In fact, he loves when you think that because he wants to blindside you. He doesn't want you to be ready and prepared. You know what Peter says? Peter says it like this. Be watchful, okay? Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. He's on a mission. He's not playing games. There's one way to think about a temptation, and it's really, let me give it to you, really simple. Here's how you can think about temptation, okay? It's to see all temptation as an appeal to believe a lie, okay? That's, that's essentially what temptation is. All temptation is an appeal to believe a lie, to believe an illusion about reality, And what Satan does is he seeks to address the three most foundational questions for humanity, okay? This is always what Satan does. Listen, the first question is this, who is God? He he wants to assault that question. He wants to define that question for you. The second question is this, who are we? He wants you to think about yourself from his perspective. And the third question he wants to address is this, how do we live? How do we live? Let me rephrase those another way. He's seeking to assault these questions. What is the meaning or purpose of life? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? Okay. Satan wants to go after all three of those things. And by the way, Satan doesn't actually have new strategies. He's still engaged in the same project, and he's still doing things the same way. He's doing them the same way now that he did in the garden. This is why this passage is so helpful for us. He's attacking the Word of God, but he's not going right at it. Did you notice that? He speaks with some truth, but the best lies are 95% true. This is the way he works. He's crafty. He's careful. He's not walking up to you with just a bold face, blatant frontal assault, an obvious lie. That's not the way he works. He wants to reel you in. He's, He's an angler, a perfect fisherman, and he knows the bait to throw in front of you, and he's so careful on how quickly he pulls it back, and he wants you to just kind of follow it along, and then he wants to snag you with it when you least expect it. And he wants us essentially to do three things here, okay? We'll break these down quickly. He wants us to doubt God's word and then to distort God's word and ultimately to deny God's word. Let's look at the first part there. He wants us to doubt God's word. This is how temptation works. He's reducing God's command to a question. Has God really said? You notice that? Again, not a flat-out contradiction, just a, a question that he just throws at Eve in order to produce doubt and distrust. And notice that he craftily emphasizes God's prohibition, not his provision. Do you notice that? I mean, think about it up to this point. God's given, God's given Adam and Eve everything they could have ever wanted in the garden. He said, you've got this. All, all of this is yours. Go have at it. Enjoy it. There's this one thing you can't do. And you notice how Satan just bypasses all the freedom, all the pleasure, all the provisions of God, and he goes straight towards the prohibition. God doesn't want you to be happy. You, you can't trust God's word. You can't believe that God's word is actually for your good. God is a, a tyrant and he's stingy. He's holding out on you. The Puritan William Gurnall said uh, 
that Satan commonly stops the ear from hearing sound doctrine before he opens it to embrace corrupt doctrine. If he can get you to doubt God's word, to call into the question the doctrine that you believe about God, especially in God's word, then he's, he's, listen, he's opening your ear now to receive error. How much sin in your life and mine is the result of first doubting that God's word is really good and believing that God's, uh, God is, is holding out on us instead? Why, why shouldn't I be allowed to do these things? Why, why shouldn't I be allowed to have fun like other people in the world? Why, why shouldn't I be able to just kind of dabble with sin, right? Like that's, that's the temptation. Yeah, why, why would God not let me have the kind of fun that the world seems to be having? God must be stingy. He, he's not good like he says he is. God's word isn't true. That's the first a strategy here. The second one is to distort God's word. Notice that he moves on pretty quickly to distorting God's word, but he does it so subtly, and it's right there in the first verse again. Did God actually say, look, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He, he wants, listen, he wants God's words to appear harsh and restrictive. Where God says, my blessings come with necessary boundaries, Satan says that true blessing comes with no boundaries at all. You must be totally free to do whatever you want, whenever you want. God didn't say you can't eat from any tree. He just said you can't eat from one tree. But you see, when we have a distorted understanding of God's word, we will also be prone to distort it ourselves. And so notice what her response is. She actually distorts the word of God as well. She adds this prohibition. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. See what she added in there? Moses, I think, is, is giving us hints that this thing is going off the rails quickly. She's, she's, she's biting into the lie before she takes a bite of the fruit. There's this subtle distortion even in her own heart. She's starting to think, yeah, maybe Satan's right. Maybe God is more restrictive. Maybe God isn't in this for my good. The fundamental deception, this is what R.C. Sproul says, he says the fundamental deception of Satan is the lie that obedience can never bring happiness. Let me say that again. The fundamental deception of Satan is the lie that obedience can never bring happiness. Ignatius of Loyola, he's the, the founder of the Jesuit order, he's credited with um, defining sin like this, an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. We sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. And at the end of the day, we don't believe that God's word and God's way and God's will will make us happy. And so we distort it and we change it. We doubt it. And ultimately, we get to this place where Satan's leading in his strategy where we deny God's word. We deny it. We reject it. 
And Satan does this, right? Now he's, he's got his moment. I mean, her heart's wide open now to receive this deception and the most blatant lie of all. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And again, just, I just want you to notice that what Satan is saying, there is a lot of truth to that. But tragically and ironically, it's not going to go the way they think. Their eyes will be opened. They're not going to die. Not right away. You will not surely die. In other words, do you hear what Satan's saying? There are no consequences for your sin. Your sin is, is, forget the idea of sin. You're free. Do what you want. Live the way you want. There will be no consequences. There will be no judgment. God is a liar. It's ironic, isn't it? The father of lies. In this moment, accusing Father God of being the liar. He removes the threat of judgment, which produces the final impetus for rebellion. He lies yet again. You don't have to listen to God. Become whatever and whoever you want. Identity is self-defined. Morality is self-determined. Take control of your own life. You will be like God. And I just, Spurgeon says this so well. He says that Satan is adept in teaching us how to steal our master's glory. You'll be like God. You don't need God. You don't need to bow the knee to God. You can be God. Be true to yourself. Love is love. You do you. Speak your truth. You, you, you hear this? You see how our world's slogans are Satan's sayings? The deception, or really the temptation is, and has always been twofold. One, to seize autonomy from God, and two, to redefine good and evil based on the voice in our heads and the inclination of our hearts rather than the clear, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Be ready. Be ready. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 11.3. I'm going to roll through these scriptures. Just follow along quick. They'll be on the screen. Listen, be ready. But I am afraid, Paul says, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, think about this, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Ephesians 5.6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 10.3-5, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those strongholds? How does the enemy attack? Listen to this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Be ready, church. Be ready, Christian. Be ready for the lies that come in the form of deceptive ideas. This is the devil's primary method of enslaving human beings and societies at large. You see, our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and to liberate them with the weapon of truth. Jesus said it like this, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So listen, in the midst of temptation, let me just, let me just give you a few um, ways you can fight against temptation in your own life, some truths to believe. This is just broad, and you can get very specific with this, but some truth to believe when you face temptation, and you may face temptation, listen, the moment you walk out this door. In fact, I, I, I got to believe, listen, whenever, I, I really believe this. I've seen this in my own life. Whenever we talk about Satan, whenever we talk about sin and temptation, whenever we try to expose the schemes of the devil, guess what he does? He goes right on the attack. So be ready. All right, here's, here's some truth to hold on to in the midst of temptation. First, believe God is good. Believe God is good. That's, that's the attack that Satan levels in the garden. That's, that's the, at the fundamental level, he is undermining this truth that God is really who he says he is, that God is good and he does good. You have to, if you're ever going to battle temptation, you have to believe first and foremost that God is good. God is so good. He, like we sang about, he's so worthy. He's so holy. He's so beautiful and marvelous. And he's so, listen, he's so worthy of the worship of our entire lives. It's, it's been rightly said, listen, that we worship our way into sin. We must learn to worship our way out of sin. Believe God is good. He's not stingy. God's not holding out on you. Secondly, believe that obedience leads to blessing. Again, this, this was what Satan attacked. <laughs> that, that's not true blessing. Obeying God, submitting to God's not true blessing. That's not going to lead to your best life now. But you have to believe, listen, that God is good. His word is good. And, and listen, obedience always leads to blessing. Sin always leads to suffering. This is just the way it goes. It's built into the world and the way that it functions. It must be built into your relationship with God. Let me give you one more. Foster gratitude. Become a grateful person. I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine if, if here's Eve, right? She's in the garden and Satan's tempting her to disobey God, to eat this from this one tree. If she just stopped for a moment and said, first of all, what you're saying about my father is a lie. Don't talk about my dad like that. He's good. You know how I know he's good? Because look at what he's given me. Look, look, at, all, look at all the blessings. Just open your eyes. Like, if she just looked around and was like, man, God is so good. Look at all these awesome blessings. Look at all the food and the provision and the beauty and the wonder and the awe. Life is amazing. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't resent my father. He's not stingy. My father, he gives good gifts to his children. I'm so thankful for, for what God's given me. Listen, listen. There would have been no place for greed in her heart if it wasn't already filled with gratitude. 
for what God gave. And the same is true for you and I. Let me say it like this. The weeds of greed cannot grow in a garden of gratitude. Okay? Just can't. If you, you just like fill your life with gratitude, look around every day and see God's grace in your life and all the rich blessings that he's poured out upon you, then greed, listen, greed just kind of, covetousness, greed, it just falls away. Like, I don't need any of that. I've got all this good stuff from God. I've got God. What else do I need? All right, let me give you one more. I think I said I was cutting it off. I'm going to give you one more. Be careful who you listen to. And that's a very obvious application, isn't it? Just be careful who you listen to. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people that out in this world, a lot, of, a lot of ways in which Satan is spreading his lies and the, the propaganda and the misinformation. I mean, he's, just, he's very subtle and he's very crafty. As Christians, we need to be wise and discerning about what we choose to listen to and who we choose to listen to. And we need more exposure to the Word of God than the words from anyone else. Amen? Amen. There you go. That's what we need. And Satan's like, you, you want to be like God. You want to become wise like God. But, but you know what the problem with that is? Is all through the Scriptures, you want to know what wisdom is? Wisdom is defined, listen, as the practical application of truth. And where does truth come from? It comes from God. It comes from God. Wisdom is found in listening to the Word of God and obeying the Word of God, not dismissing and forsaking it. I heard somebody once say it like this, you need to be careful what you allow through your ear gate. <laughs> I like that. It's very vivid, isn't it? Like you gotta, this is your ear gate, okay? Like what you let pass through that gate, that's on you. So be wise. Shut the gate to what is false, ungodly. So we're left here now with Adam and Eve and how, how they're going to deal with the temptation to be like God. And, and in an ideal world, in the middle of paradise, the hope would be they grab a hold of that snake, they ring him around like that, and they just chuck him out over the wall of the garden. But here's what we see. We see the tempted, and here's, here's the response for us. Be forgiven. Be forgiven. Now, I want to draw you back for a moment into the context. Do you remember how chapter 2 ended? It's very interesting. It ends with a wedding. Adam and Eve getting ready to fulfill the mission of God. And the last verse, verse 25, says this, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is a kind of innocence and ignorance before the fall. And Moses, now, he, he slows the pace down in verse 6 by sketching every detail as the woman contemplates eating from the forbidden tree. Notice how, how it just slows down. It's kind of like the, the camera angle changes, and we're given some insight into her heart. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now just pause there. The language here is intentionally link, linking us all the way back to the first two chapters of Genesis. The woman saw, the, who, who in chapter one saw, saw that it was good? God. So now what do we see here? Now, now, it's like Eve is becoming 
godlike. Eve is now trying to play the part of God. She wants to be the one to determine what is good. She sees the fruit. She thinks that it's good. She saw that it was good for food. It's like all the other trees. What's the difference? And, and it, was, it was a delight to the eyes, again, like all the other trees, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. They could be wise like God. So she, she took of its fruit, and she ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's a... I was trying to remember which, which storybook Bible it was. Um, some of you may have this. You know the storybook Bible that's written by David Helm? It's like a big one, white cover. Uh, anyone help me out, please? Okay. The big, is it the big picture? Story, okay. Fantastic kids' Bible. But it, there's, there is, it's so well written. When you get to this part in Genesis, I'd encourage you, you have that Bible at home with your kids, go home and read this section after this, this message. The title of chapter 3 in that Bible is, a very sad day. And then it's, it's written in such a way that just, man, tugs at your heart. Because that's exact, that's what this is, isn't it? This is such a, such a sad day. Here's God's kids. Man, they have everything. They have everything. They have access to God. They have all the blessings of God. He's not held one good thing from them. And, and then in a moment, in a single moment, they get tempted by the serpent. And it seems like you're like, how did this, how, not only how did this happen, how did this happen so fast? Like they, they were just like walking with God in the garden, delighting in his presence. And now, in just a split second, they, they want to rebel against God and kick him off his throne and pretend like he's not good, he's not faithful, he doesn't love them. It's really interesting. You know what? You know what Satan does at the beginning? I didn't mention this. I wanted to save it right here. You know what he intentionally does? So in chapter 2, we read about Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God. You know Satan intentionally leaves out the name Yahweh. Because he wants them to believe, listen, that God is not loving. You're like, where's Adam? You know what I'm saying? Like, we just have this picture of this awesome marriage. And it's like, you know, you can imagine, you know, you're on your, your wedding day. You're like, I'm going to be the husband that God calls me to be. I'm going to lead you in the truth. You're like, right after the wedding. That's like right after the wedding, you turn around and, and then like, where's Adam? What's he doing? He's standing there watching his wife be deceived by a talking snake. Talk about a failure of God-given leadership responsibility in the home. You should have stopped her. Eve, don't do, don't listen to that stupid snake. By the way, why is it twice in the Bible we have a talking animal, a serpent, and then, a, you know, Balaam's donkey? And I, I cannot for the life of me figure out why their first question is, how did you learn how to talk? <laughs> it's not normal. But it's like something, it's a cue. Something's not right here. Adam's like, we, 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 we shouldn't try to be like God. We're not called to be like God. We're called to honor God, to obey God, to follow God, to, to worship God. That's what we're called to do. 
And instead, what does he do? He, he, he gives in. He keeps silent and he allows his wife to transgress God's clear commandment. And then he transgresses it himself. He takes the fruit and he eats. And just look at the language. She took and ate. She gave and he ate. And the creature's desire to be like God in this moment. God's creature no longer trusts God's goodness. Sin enters God's perfect paradise. Rebellion in God's kingdom. And just the sadness again in verse 7. It's just so disheartening. Then, look at this, then the eyes of both were opened and they, listen to this, remember verse 25 of chapter 2? And they knew that they were naked. Just, just shame and guilt and condemnation in a moment. This is, he's just, like Satan's now gone. He's off chuckling in the corner. He got them. He blinded them. And they walked right into the trap. And now, now everything is ruined. And what do they do? What do they do? Notice what they don't do. They don't run back to God and fall on their face and say, God, God, forgive us. What have we done? No, you know what they do? They take fig leaves. They sew them together. They, they make themselves clothes. They cover themselves. We say, what are they doing? They're covering their shame. This is humanity's first attempt, attempt at redemption. This is what humanity does to try to deal with their sin. I, I, I can save myself. I'll fix my problem. I'll deal with this my way, right? I'll make this right with God. I'll clean myself up. Thomas Brooks, again, a famous Puritan writer, be on the screen, he, sa he says this, he says, Satan promises the best but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and he pays with death. You know, I, I, if I see if I can get this right, I, I just came into my mind, but someone, someone, again, famously said it like this, sin Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And you know what's amazing as we read this? Like, we, we, we see the guilt and the shame. We see the fear, the confusion, that sense of condemnation. And we see this, but more than see it, we feel it, don't we? We feel it. Because like our first parents, listen, we too have succumbed to the tempter and his temptations, haven't we? We've been tempted, and like them, we've fallen into sin. Every one of us. And, and more frequently, right, than we like to acknowledge or admit. We also what it's, know what it's like to cover our sin, to try to fix our problems. But deep down inside, I think every one of us, we know that we can't. We, we know because of our sin, we're in big trouble. We can't cover our guilt and shame. We can't erase it. We can't remove it. We can't fix ourselves. And, and oftentimes in our lives, right, we long to go back. We, we have this sense of regret because of our past sin. We, maybe it's just even the moment, right, of sin. We long to go back. Like, I, I, I want a mulligan. I need a redo. It shouldn't have happened like that. We long to resist temptation and to be victorious when tempted. We know that what we need, deep down we know that what we need is someone to do for Adam and someone to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And, and the scriptures, they tell us, don't they, that there is only 
one who is tempted in every way like us, yet is without sin. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus' first run in with the devil, it's recorded by both Matthew and Luke. But what's really fascinating is that Luke, so Matthew writes predominantly to Jews, Luke is writing to Gentiles, and, and it's interesting what Luke does. Before, right before, some of you may have caught this, right before he gets into the temptation of Jesus out in the wilderness, you want to know what he does? He gives a genealogy, and the genealogy lands with Adam, son of God. And launching right out of that phrase, it tells us that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Now, there's a parallel here with Israel. Matthew makes that clear. Israel's an Adam-like figure who's supposed to try to do what Adam did and failed just like Adam. But it's pointing us all the way back to Adam. And there's a lot going on in the, the, the account in Luke, but let me just give you this brief synopsis with the scope of the larger story um, the Scripture tells that Jesus comes as a second Adam. That's what the Bible tells us. The one true human being who comes to do what Adam was supposed to do all along but failed. He was supposed to come and face down the devil but not give in. That's what Adam should have done. But like Adam, Jesus is tempted. But unlike Adam, he is victorious over sin and Satan. And the devil starts in on Jesus the same way he did on Eve. He plants uh, doubts in Jesus' mind about God's word. Here's what he says to him first. Listen, if you are the son of God, you hear that, that question? It's fascinating because in the story, literally right before, God says to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. It's the snake's update of, did God really say? The devil's threefold temptation is it's subtle, it's clever, and it's manipulative, and has nothing to do with getting Jesus to sin the way we think of it. Listen, he's appealing to Jesus to take his kingdom by an easier way. That's the temptation for Jesus in his flesh. To get the right thing the wrong way. Why? Jesus came to reclaim the kingdom to take back what the usurper stole. He came to do what Adam failed to do, and he came to put an end to Satan once and for all. Three times the devil tempts Jesus by quoting and distorting Scripture. Each time, Jesus calmly responds by rightly quoting the Scriptures. Satan tries to get Jesus to deny God's word and deny God's will. But Jesus, praise God, doesn't budge one inch. The closing line of the account is that when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. That opportune time would be in a garden where Jesus would sweat great drops of blood as he looked to a cross, where he would suffer the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Jesus would defeat Satan in the wilderness. He would defeat him in the garden and he would defeat him ultimately upon the cross. 
Colossians 2 tells us that he put Satan to open shame trampling on him through the cross. And our path to victory over temptation, listen, here's, here's maybe the most important thing you can be reminded of today. Our path to victory over temptation, over sin, and over Satan begins by first looking to Jesus. It has to begin there. Because he's the only one, he's the only one who faced Satan head on and didn't give in. He's the only one who is tempted in every way like us, yet is without sin. And we must first be forgiven of our sins before we can go on fighting our sin in our life. And the call of the scriptures, listen, is to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus You who have been tempted and have fallen into sin, come to Jesus. Run right away to Jesus. Don't don't try to cover your sin or hide your sin or fix your problem. Run to the only one who can. Run to the one who wants to clothe you with his perfect righteousness. Run to the one who, who bled and died in your place as your substitute. And when you fall again, listen, Christian, when you fall again, You want to know what you're supposed to do? Run again to Jesus. Run right back to the cross. Come to him again and again and again. He will never turn you away. 